Jodcast, still planning to be here in 2013, with Philippa Hartley, Libby Jones, Indy Leclerc, Ian MacDonald and Mark Perber. The Jodcast, December 2012 Extra Edition. And welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Mark, and presenting with me today for the second time is Indy, and for the very first time is Philippa. Hi there. Hi. And I'm going to immediately be grossly unfair on Philippa and ask <laughs> her what she's studying. I'm looking at weak gravitational lensing. We know that galaxy shapes are distorted by gravity, and we can use this to find out where matter is in the universe. From this, we can look at the evolution of structure over time and try to constrain dark energy. So you've got these galaxies, and they are having this effect where things like dark matter, is it, are doing a bit of gravitational lensing, bending the light, making them seem as though they're a little bit sort of aligned. That's right. So any matter at all causes light to be deflected. So we can use this fact to find out where dark matter is. The main problem with this is that there could be some intrinsic alignments between sources. So we don't know how much lensing is responsible and how much the effect is due to galaxies being aligned with each other. We might be able to get around this problem by using the polarisation angle of the galaxy. This is correlated with the original galaxy's shape and is unaffected by lensing, and I'm looking into this idea. Okay. And what's the um, polarisation angle thing all about? It's linear polarisation. It's produced by synchrotron radiation in the galaxy. So like the light has an electric field and it's oscillating in a particular direction. That's right. The polarisation angle, because of the way it's produced, is correlated with the galaxy angle in the sky and is unaffected by lensing. In the show this time, we talk to Dave Jones about solving the mystery of an unusual planetary nebula and Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, I chatted to the Director General of the SKA, Phil Diamond, for this episode's Jodbite. Well, I'm sat in the uh, new square kilometre array project office at Jodrell Bank Observatory with the Director General of the SKA, Professor Phil Diamond. So, Phil, perhaps you'd like to tell us about the, the new building here and, and what it's all about. Well, Mark, it's, uh, it's a great building here on, on the site at Jodrell Bank. As you can see over my shoulder, you can see the Lovell Telescope out of the window, which I think is a great reminder of what it is that we do which is to design and ultimately build a, the largest radio telescope in the world. So the, the building itself is uh, provided by the University of Manchester. We're just the tenants here. We're not connected to the university in any formal way. The SKA organisation is an in, independent international organisation. It's actually a, a, a private company, but funded by, by governments around the world. The headquarters are here at Jodrell Bank, fairly large building, 1,200 square metres, uh, and ultimately we'll have about 60 people here. It's quite reminiscent of the main observatory building, actually, isn't it? Although a lot newer, but I mean, the way it's laid out, it's quite nice and open and uh, everyone can interact. But, and that, that's very much the design. Yes, large open space in the central area with tables set up for, for lunches and coffee breaks. Um, in fact, I just announced to the staff today at our first staff meeting that... Uh, Coffee will be uh, will be free, uh, and, that, and that's that's to encourage interaction amongst the engineers, the scientists, the visitors. 
So it's it's a little hook to get them to come to uh, to coffee time. That is a great boon for academics. <laughs> yes. um, we're so used to talking about the SK. Maybe we should explain a little bit about about what it is. It's um, been a very long time in the planning, as, as you said, the largest radio telescope in the world. So maybe you could just tell us where the design is up to at the present time. Yeah, as you say, it's been a long time in the, in the planning. Uh, the first thoughts that uh, really lent in the direction of the SKA were in the early 1990s. The, the ideas, the concepts uh, solidified over the years. Some concepts were, were rejected. Uh, and we've come a long way since those early days. So the SKA organization itself was formed uh, November last year. The staff here, the, the, the design team started building up uh, in April of this year, uh, working with colleagues all around the world in all the different uh, radio astronomy institutes in the, in the partner countries. And so we're now really at the start of a four-year, hopefully a four-year process to deliver a detailed design uh, for the SKA. And at the end of that four years, we really hope that we'll have the money and we'll be able to issue contracts to industry to actually start digging the ditches, putting the roads in place, laying the fiber, the foundations, and start building the antennas and the, the whole infrastructure required for the SKA. So what do we know already about, for example, where it's going to be and um, what sort of scale of uh, land it's going to cover? Well, in May of this year, the, uh, the members of the SKA just took the site decision it will be split between uh, Southern Africa and Australia. It's going to be built in two phases. Phase one is about 10% of the SKA. Phase two, the remaining 90%. And in the first phase, we expect to build uh, something of the order of 190 15-meter dishes in South Africa to work very closely with the Meerkat Array, which is under construction now. And in Australia, uh, 60 dishes working with ASCAP to form a large radio survey telescope, but also the low-frequency array will be in, in Australia. That will be the uh, the dipole array. And then when it comes to the actual full thing, obviously, it's, again, it's going to be split between South Africa and Australia. Yes. Are they like two separately operating instruments, or how do they interlock? Well, that's a very perceptive question, and we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking about the, how they will work together. Both sites will sit under one SKA observatory. We want to make sure that as much of the technology and the systems uh, are as common as, as, as can be. Obviously, when you get down into the detail, there will be some differences between the two sites. But we want them to look and feel exactly the same to the user community uh, as if they were uh, sitting on one site. So it will be one observatory different technologies on the two sites, but uh, the, the users, the scientific community, will interact with it as, as a, a coherent whole. Okay. And the different frequencies that they operate at, will that be split between the two sites? Yes. Yeah, so primarily the low-frequency astronomy from about 70 megahertz uh, to uh, maybe 1 to 2 gigahertz uh, will be in Australia. The higher frequency, actually we call it mid-frequency, uh, from about 500 megahertz up to uh, 3 gigahertz for phase 1, but uh, higher frequencies uh, for phase 2. That will be on the dish array uh, based in 
uh, Southern Africa. And one thing I forgot to say, for phase two, we have an advanced instrumentation program which may well deliver what are called dense aperture arrays. These are an evolution, um, in fact, a fairly dramatic evolution of the dipole arrays for low frequencies and may provide um, a fantastic new technology for the second phase of the SKA that enables us to see the whole sky at once with uh, essentially flat uh, antennas. But this this is advanced technology. Uh, we'll take a decision on whether to, to include that in phase two later on. But it's a big push on developing that technology by European institutes led by the Dutch. Yeah, it's fairly amazing. It feels like many telescopes rolled into one in a sense. You're covering such a huge frequency range and then you've got a combination of dishes of the fairly traditional type plus the aperture arrays where you use computers to essentially look at the different parts of the sky. And it's amazingly ambitious, really. When when, when do we think it's actually going to be online as 100% SKA? Well, just just to say it is ambitious. Relatively, we we are covering a huge frequency range. And you can't do it all with a single technology. Dishes don't work well at low frequencies. Dipole arrays don't work well at uh, mid to higher frequencies. So we need to do the science. We need that full range of technology. But that's why we want to make it look like one observatory. So you, know, you the user, shouldn't have to know the details of how an aperture array works to, to do the science that you want. I mean, you may want to know, but you shouldn't have to. In terms of timescales, we're, we're looking, the detailed design phase will take of order four years from now. Construction of phase one, we expect to take up until about the, towards the end of the decade. So with science being delivered from phase one, um, maybe 2018, 2019. And then phase two will continue, hopefully, if we get the funding on from that. Uh, with a, a target date for con- uh, finishing phase two in the mid 2020s. Okay, it's, I mean it sounds absolutely brilliant. What are the um, maybe just as a last thing, uh, an overview of the science goals and the sorts of things that the SK will be able to do that no other telescope currently can? Well, that is really down to the uniqueness of, of radio astronomy and some of the things that it can do that can, cannot be done at other wavelengths. That's not to say that other wavelengths don't have their own unique science goals as well. But for radio astronomy, the key things are the, what we call the, the history of hydrogen, understanding uh, the evolution of hydrogen, the most common element in the universe, all the way from uh, the Big Bang until now. Only radio astronomy can study hydrogen because of the, the frequency at which hydrogen emits uh, radiation. So that's, that's a major goal. Pulsar, using pulsars to probe fundamental physics, um, maybe even to detect gravitational waves and, and understand gravitational waves. That's a, a major goal. Those are the two major goals of phase one. But phase two of the SKA is going to be looking at the magnetic universe. That's best done in, in radio domain. What we call the cradle of life, which is uh, just a catchy, catchy name for ex- exploring the, uh, the origins uh, of, of planets, uh, maybe looking for some of the molecular building blocks of life, many of which um, emit uh, in, in radio wavelengths. Of course, uh, there's those things that we, we don't know uh, that we'll be, be looking at. We'll be studying dark energy. We'll be looking 
the effects of dark matter. And one that the public pick up on uh, quite a lot, of course, is uh, that search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That's not a primary goal of, of the SKA, but it may there, there will be what we call commensal observations, that is, run, observations running in parallel with other science programs that will enable us to, to take a data stream through uh, SETI electronics. So huge range of science, uh, very complementary to the other big instruments being built. It's very exciting, especially for everyone at Jodrell to, to have the headquarters here. But I think for radio astronomers all over the world, they'll be looking forward to it. So uh, I'll say thank you very much there. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, for our main interview this episode, Mark talked to Dr. Dave Jones about solving the mystery of an unusual planetary nebula. Because Dave was speaking from Chile, the sound quality of this interview is a little variable, so we apologise for that. For this interview, I'm linking directly to Chile, where with Dr. Dave Jones, who's a former jobcaster, because he's been a co-author on a paper that's appeared in the journal Science, and it's all about a special planetary nebula. So, Dave, can you tell us a bit about what the paper's found? Okay, so the probably the first thing I should do is try to explain what a planetary nebula is. So a planetary nebula has nothing to do with planets first. It's a, it's a misnomer because the, the guy who discovered the first planetary nebula, William Herschel, he also discovered the planet Uranus, and he thought that his new nebula, he knew it wasn't a planet, but it had a sort of similar appearance. It was... Um, sort of fuzzy and disc-like, and so it looked a little bit like a planet, even though it wasn't, so he called it a planetary nebula. Okay. But in fact, what it is, is um, a shell of gas around a dying star. So when a star similar to the mass of the sun comes to the end of its life, it throws off its outer layers, and then the core of the star, which is left, gets very hot and emits very high-energy radiation, which sort of lights up this shell of gas, and that's what we see as a planetary nebula, this um, glowing shell of gas on the dying star. So that's how the sun could end up, will end up then, I guess? That's the idea, yeah. But the truth is that we're not really sure that the sun will end up like that. So I'll kind of come back to that later on. Okay. So our paper is um, based on a particular planetary nebula called Fleming 1, which um, shows a really unusual structure. So the the basic idea behind this process of which the the outer layers of the star are thrown away is that if a star is spherical, which all stars basically are, the shell of gas should be basically spherical as well. But most of the planetary nebulae that we see are aspherical. They have a huge range of, of shapes, ranging from highly axisymmetric things like very bipolar structures, sort of cylindrical or, or like hourglasses, mm -hmm. uh, through to very irregular and, and amorphous things, and then also different structures within those. So we see ring-like features or jets, big swirly jets, and this particular nebula is one of those that displays these uh, these extreme jets. So maybe you'll be able to put a picture in the in the show notes. This nebula has two jets, one in each direction, which appear to be rotating, so they're kind of swirling around as they as they move away from the star that's the, at the center of the nebula. Yeah, you can see that really and, clearly on the picture. Actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful object. And so we didn't really understand how you could make that. So the, the best theory that we've had, and it's been around for maybe 30 or 40 years, 
is that actually the star at the center, the star that's dying, has a partner. There's another star close by, and the interaction between the dying star and its partner, which is orbiting around it, causes the outer shells of the star to be thrown away in these strange formations. Okay. Uh, and up until now, in this particular nebula, nobody has been able to find the partner. Nobody has been able to prove that there's, there's two stars, there's a binary system at the center of this nebula, and that's what we've found. Oh, wow. So is, is it a case of peering in there and then you can resolve these two stars apart from each other? No, it's so far away and they're so close together that even with the biggest telescopes in the world, it still looks like one star because they're so, so close together, you can't tell the two apart. So the way that we did it is by using spectroscopy. So that's breaking the light from the stars down into its component colors. And so stars have very specific spectra. They have particular features, particular wavelengths of light that are absorbed or emitted. Mm -hmm. And by looking at how those vary, we can, uh, we can measure that the stars are actually orbiting around one another. So, for example, when the star is, is moving towards you in its orbit, if you, can, if you can imagine a star sort of circling around in front of you, at one point in, it, in its orbit, it will be moving towards you, and at half a period later on, it will be moving away. And um, due to a, a thing called the Doppler effect, which means that the wavelength of light is shifted depending on, uh, on how fast an object is moving, which is the same process that happens with um, fire truck sirens. So when you hear a, a car or a, or a fire truck go past you, it, it sort of makes this change in pitch. It goes, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> it changes from a, from a high pitch to a low pitch. Yes. And there's exactly the same thing, but with light. So when it's moving towards you, the light moves ever so slightly towards the blue, and when it's moving away from you, it goes ever so slightly towards the red. <laughs> so by looking at how these, how these lines that we identify in the spectra of our star, how they move, if they move to the blue or to the red, over a, a period of time, we can see the star moving around in its orbit and imply that there are, there are two stars there. Okay. Yeah, because I was looking in the actual paper, and uh, there's a really nice graph where it shows this radial velocity based on the Doppler effect. And I was just That's wondering right. with that one, is that looking at a combination of both of the stars, or is it just looking at one of them? It's actually pretty much looking only at one of them, because one star is so hot mm-hmm. that almost all of the light it emits is in the ultraviolet. And we were using a, a, a telescope, an instrument that looked in the, in the optical light, the light that our eyes see. So at that wavelength, we really only see one of the stars, because the other star is way, way bluer. Okay. And what's the nature of the two stars that are in there? So this is the one of the very interesting things, is that previously people had made models of how you would make these jets with a binary star. Based on the, how the jets look, how swirly they are, they would guess that the two stars are orbiting around each other every 1,000 or 10,000 days, something like that. Uh, and we found that the two stars are orbiting around each other every point. Two days. Wow, every 1.2 days. I mean, imagine that. You know, so the Earth goes around the sun every 365 days, but here we have two stars which are going around each other every 1.2 days. So it's much closer together, and this would have been a problem, except that we found that both stars are 
dying stars. So both of them are the leftover core when a star dies, which is called a, a white dwarf. Probably means that when the jets were actually fired off, the period of the, the, the orbit was actually 10,000 days. But then after that, there's been a, a process of mass transfer. So one star has stripped material from the other one because they're so close and um, resulted in the formation of this system with two two dying stars rather than just one. Yeah, that was going to be the next question I was going to ask us. He was going to be like, what, what was the history of this system? How did it end up in that state? Is it like you're seeing the planetary nebula of one of the stars only or a combination of planetary nebulae of both of them? Have they both been through that stage? So we think that it's, it's from basically the leftover of one of the stars. So what happens when a, when a star begins to die is it kind of inflates. It, it blows up between 10 and 100 times its, its, its radius. And then this is why the, the stuff gets blown away, because it's less tightly connected to the star. So we think at some point a long time ago, one of the stars went through this, this phase and got rid of all of its, uh, its outers. At the same time, the orbit probably shrunk a little bit. It became closer together. And then at some later point, the other star began to die. So the, the rate at which stars die is dictated by how heavy they are, how massive they are. And more massive stars burn their fuel faster, so they die quicker. So we think that the, the partner star was probably more massive, lost all of its mass. And then the second star, the one that is actually forming the planetary nebula, it also began to die, but as it lost some of its mass, this mass was gravity towards the other star and formed a, a disk as it spiraled in. And it was the disk that launched the jets, but then later on, when the star became even closer to dying, the, the mass that was transferred was transferred much faster. So rather than there just being a, sm a slow stream of... of gas that formed this this disk it was kind of like a runaway transfer of mass because the stars were so close together and um, this runaway transfer meant that in the end the two stars ended up embedded in the same sphere of gas that we call it we call it a common envelope basically the stars orbit around in this gas and it's kind of like going around in treacle if you can imagine so they end up being slowed down and that means that the orbit shrinks. You know, they kind of file in towards each other. Uh -huh. And as they, in, they throw off this envelope, and so you end up shrinking the, the period of the stars down to the current period of 1.2 days, but also you throw off material around the stars, and that material is then what ends up being the center of this planetary nebula. So if you look at the picture, you see that the jets are from the period earlier on, and then there's a sort of central core which is sort of like a barrel shape, but with a little ring in the middle. Yes. And this barrel shape and the ring is probably the remnant of this envelope, this collection of gas, the sphere of gas that, uh, that enveloped the two stars. Okay. And does that mean then that the stars are still spiraling together, or have they stopped that phase now? Well, they will be spiraling towards each other, but now much more slowly. So the only thing that's, that's slowing them down now is a combination of a few effects, one of which is, uh, is gravitational radiation. So <laughs> the two stars are so close together that they actually emit, or we think they should emit, waves of gravitational radiation, which no one has managed to detect. 
But this means that they slowly begin to spiral towards each other, but very, very slowly. So, in fact, we don't think that they will, anytime soon, they will never meet. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, the sun is, is not in a, in a binary system with another star, but uh, you were talking before about how it may or may not end up as a planetary nebula. So, why is the history uncertain? Exactly. So, like I said, in this system, you had the, the interaction between the two stars actually helped to throw off the material that became the, the center of this planetary nebula. And in all of the, the textbooks and things, it's always been said that all stars that are like the sun will form a planetary nebula. But now we're actually not so sure. We think that there's a possibility that you might actually need to either be heavier than the sun or need to have a, a, a binary partner in order to help get rid of the mass fast enough to get rid of this shell fast enough in order for us to be able to see it. So you can imagine that there's this, this shell of gas that's being thrown off into, into space, but uh, it's quite tenuous, it's quite thin, there's not much of it there. And uh, when it gets to so far out from the star, so if it, if it happens very slowly, the star at the center, the core, doesn't get hot enough, fast enough to light up the shell until the shell is so far away from the star that it's too thin for us to be able to see, really. It's so it's kind of drifted off and merged into, into the space around it. So it's possible that this process won't happen fast enough okay. in the sun, both the ejection of the, the outer layers as well as the, the change of the central core into a white dwarf, it won't happen fast enough that you'll be able to see, you'll be able to see a planetary nebula. The material will just fade away and drift off into space. But the truth is that right now we're not really sure. Okay. So it's going to be billions of years before that happens anyway to the sun. So I suppose the thing is that you've got to try and catch these different planetary nebulae in their quite brief phases to try and work out what, what they all do. It's sort of a zoo of different creatures, isn't it really? Oh yeah. In, in this particular system, in this Fleming 1 nebula, we think we have it pretty well tied down. We have a, a good idea of what the past of the system is and what it's doing now. But for all of the other planetary nebulae, which show all of these weird range of, of sizes and shapes and structures, we don't know exactly how each one of them was formed. So we have to investigate each one of them individually and, and, and then be able to piece them together to try and get an idea of for any given star or any given pair of stars, what we think their, their final state will be. And with Fleming 1, was there a lot of computer modelling involved in uh, coming to that conclusion about, about how it was formed? Yeah, so, the, so there was a lot of work in the past, as I said, the, 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 trying to determine how it could form, and they, they, the computer models, these simulations, showed the best way to do was with a was with a binary, and it was also these simulations that that showed that the the orbital period of the stars should be a lot longer than it currently is. So it was finding from these from these simulations, and the fact that we find that there are two white dwarfs uh, in this in this system that we could piece together this this history, whereby at some point it was actually a lot longer period, and has now been shrunk down. It's quite a unique system then. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was just about the history of the whole observation of it. I understand it's not actually a, a newly observed object. It's been known about for quite a long time. Absolutely. It's been one of the, 
archetypes of something that must be formed by a binary for so long. So it was discovered in in the 1910s, I think. And ever since then, it's been observed by by many many people. And every every time it's been reobserved, we find something new and exciting. So in the beginning, with the telescopes that were around when it was first discovered, it was just a it just looked like an odd star. And then as the telescopes got bigger and better, we were able to see the, the jets and, and these structures. And then our observations prove that there's a binary in the center and also reveal much more intricate features, little blobs of gas that form this ring in the center, which before no one had ever seen. And, and that's even more conclusive evidence that the, the binary is responsible for everything because this ring-like structure is very common amongst all of the other nebulae that we've found that have that have binary central stars and there's about 40 of them now there's a sort of prevalence towards having these ring-like structures so we think that that's like a, a key that uh, the system at the center is actually a binary so in fact now to try and find more of these systems so that we can understand them better we are hunting for the binaries in systems with rings because we think the rings will be the best that the, the star in the middle is actually two stars. Okay, well, very satisfying to solve a mystery like that. That's brilliant. Despite the quality of the lineup points there, thank you very much, Dave, for joining us from Chile. Thanks for that, Mark. That's okay. <laughs> I've been thanked a lot in this episode. <laughs> well, now it's time to go on to that part of the show where we fit in everything we couldn't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So the European Space Agency wants to learn about the effect of space on ageing. And they're going to do this by subjecting 12 pillow noughts to three weeks bed rest. The beds are going to be inclined by six degrees. The idea being that staying in a tilted bed with your head being at the lower end makes your body age prematurely as if it were in space. This has been done once before. Over time, the volunteers' muscles diminish. One volunteer lost almost four kilograms. In the experiment, there are three groups. The European Space Agency wants to find out how to counteract the negative effects on the body. So one group is following an exercise routine, having their legs strapped to a vibrating plate with a force equivalent to 100 to 200 kilograms. Another group's doing the exercises as well as taking protein supplements, and a third group's the control group. Nicholas from the control group says, Bed rest is an opportunity to learn about yourself and a great way to participate in humankind's space adventure. So it's good to know that the volunteers have a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> How long are they spending in bed? They're spending three weeks in bed. Can you imagine? I'd happily volunteer for that project, <laughs> or, any, or any future studies for that matter. <laughs> three weeks with your feet raised higher than your head, though. Is that, well, I guess it's not supposed to be good for you. But I know that in space they get this effect where, because of the fluids in the body are kind of floating around, the mm. body thinks it's a bit dehydrated, and then you get puffy face and things like that so i guess they want to simulate that mm. i think i'd make that sacrifice for science then. <laughs> <laughs> at least they're looking at it positively anyway <laughs> so is this just for all future space travel is there any particular goal they've got in mind i think they just want to investigate it generally well actually speaking of space travel my odd and end this week is about space bigwigs so mainly ex-nasa administrators who want to try and offer private moon trips to the general fee-paying public. Although at $1.4 billion a flight, it's not really going to be accessible to that many people. The company that's just been set up is called uh, Golden Spike, 
and um, they're planning to offer moon trips to to private uh, clients by 2020. Although they're mainly aiming at um, governments and space agencies who don't necessarily have all the resources and equipment to to launch their own manned moon flight. Um, the company was set up when U.S. President Barack Obama scrapped the NASA program to go to the moon in 2010. And um, on the board of advisors, there are a handful of um, of ex-NASA directors and administrators, um, but some more interesting characters as well, like uh, Newt Gingrich, who's a former U.S. presidential candidate, um, who was in favor of establishing a lunar colony. And uh, get this, someone called Mike Okuda, who's a set designer for Star Trek. Cool. <laughs> so I think the uh, the spaceship's interiors are going to look really snazzy. <laughs> on a more on a more serious note, the the company is going to buy their rockets from uh, previously established companies like SpaceX, who are trying to make a rocket to go into space. Um, but they're developing their own lunar lander and spacesuits, which are going to cost about seven or eight billion dollars. Mm. And to cover those costs, they want to, uh, to merchandise the expeditions, which includes uh, giving out naming rights of the spaceship to companies. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could potentially expect a, a Jodcast lunar landing uh, <laughs> sometime in the future. <laughs> <laughs> this is really interesting because I just discovered today that when the show is released, it will be just over 40 years since anyone last walked on the moon. Wow. So Apollo 17, they left the moon on the 14th of December, 1972. Mm. And since then, nobody has actually been back. That's unbelievable, isn't it? 40 years. It's like twice my age. (laughs) (laughs) It's a shame, though, because we'd gotten so far so quickly in terms of space exploration and put men on the moon, and then suddenly there's been a a sort of desert of of space exploration, manned space exploration, and we've just been sending out robots ever since. So, well, if the private sector can deliver, I mean... I say, why not? Well, yeah. It sounds to me like they're going to form a sort of colony of um, billionaires on the moon to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, the modern Saint-Tropez on the moon. (laughs) Why not? Well, moving on to a moon that's around another planet, Saturn's largest moon, Titan, uh, is currently being looked at by the Cassini spacecraft, one of NASA's missions, and they've spotted what looks very much like a river on Titan with some tributaries and sort of flowing to a mouth, almost like it's going into a sea, but it's not water. They think it's made of ethane and methane and things like that at very cold temperatures, about minus 180 degrees Celsius or so. But this is just interesting evidence for, for liquid flow on Titan. And it's a, it's an interesting place because it's, it's got an atmosphere uh, an atmosphere of nitrogen and methane. Mm. And so sometimes people think this could be a place where we might find life. And finding hydrocarbons is some very distant kind of precursor to organic life. But with these very cold temperatures, I don't know if uh, you'd really expect to find any living things in there. So do we know how these rivers formed? Is it like the water cycle on Earth? They say so, yeah. They mm. say it is. So you get sort of rain of mm. liquid ethane, and they found evidence that of, of rainfall and ethane lakes and things like that. So it's, in a sense, it's very much like what happens on Earth, just a lot, a lot colder. Mm-hmm. Sounds a bit like Manchester, just cold and wet, but no <laughs> snow for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so after a moon around Titan, we're going much, much further away, um, actually to the, the far reaches of the universe, because 
We've just heard today that astronomers working with the Hubble Space Telescope have um, imaged their deepest or oldest view of the universe yet. They found seven galaxies, which are essentially the oldest ones we've ever seen. Six of them are new, so we hadn't seen them before. And a seventh one has had his age revised to make it the oldest and furthest away galaxy we've ever seen. Essentially, when we're when we're looking at, at what are known as deep field images, where we're getting light that's coming from the furthest reaches of the universe, and because it's so far away, it's taken a good fraction of the universe's age to reach us, so in this case, almost 13 billion years. Now, current estimates put the age of the universe at 13.7 billion years, roughly. We're looking back into time up to about 300, 400 million years just after the Big Bang, which is extremely young in terms of the universe. They saw this, uh, these galaxies by pointing the Hubble telescope for over 100 hours at a small patch in the sky in the, in the Fornax constellation, which can be found in the southern sky. So these astronomers, led by some, uh, someone from Caltech and Edinburgh University, their main scientific result is that there is actually a smooth decline in the number of, of objects you can see as you look further back in time, as it were. And um, this means that the evolution of galaxies and the formation of galaxies happened in a, in a really gradual way. So they sort of built up bit by bit, and, and the further forward in time you go, the more galaxies you start to see. We've only seen it happen in, obviously, this small patch of sky, and so what, we, what the astronomers want to do now is point the telescope at other bits of sky and see if there's the same sort of amount of objects that you see at this given, uh, this given redshift. These kinds of observations have really reached the limit of, of the Hubble telescope, and its successor will have to go further. So the James Webb Space Telescope, which is due to launch in 2018, will be able to actually peer even further back into the universe by using a larger mirror, so collecting more light and uh, having better, being better equipped to deal with um, the really stretched out light, the infrared light that, that it's going to be observing. So the light from these galaxies, it's, it's, I guess it's always worth saying that it's, if it's far away, then that means it's taken time to reach us, so we're seeing things as they were in the universe when it was younger, and those light rays have been stretched out all well, the way as they were travelling to us. Yep, because these objects uh, are receding from us, they're moving away because the universe is expanding. Well, what that does is it, it stretches out the light waves, so they were emitted as probably ultraviolet uh, light, which has a higher frequency and a shorter wavelength, and over time the light, you can just think of it as a, as a piece of elastic being stretched out, and the wavelength has gone from ultraviolet to infrared, which is the other end of the, the visible spectrum. And can we see any shape to these galaxies? Are they really just a point source? Um, no, at this kind of distance, basically all you can see is is, is a dot, uh, a slightly um, different colored dot than the rest of the background noise. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it takes it takes a good eye, I suppose, or a good computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw a picture and it, it was very kind of fuzzy and mm-hmm. maybe it was just the, like you were saying, the limit of the optical resolution of the telescope mm-hmm. that we were actually looking at. Does that mean then they're saying there were fewer galaxies in the past that we can actually detect, or there just really were fewer galaxies, full stop? I think they're pointing towards the fact that there were actually fewer galaxies. Well now, like Hubble, we have a man who reveals the secrets of the universe. It's Dr Ian MacDonald answering your astronomical questions. Answering your astronomical questions in this month's Ask an Astronomer is Dr Ian MacDonald. Hello Ian. Hello Libby. And our first question is from the great old Mac, uh, who asks, on our next visit to the Jupiter system, 
Should we send a probe to Io to look for life signs based on sulfur? How would it look for life, and what research has been done on sulfur-based life? Well, great old Mac, this is great young Mac, and、uh, I've got to ask: Have you got a spare billion pounds? Do you fancy sending a probe to Io? Well, go for it, but it probably won't phone home to say it's found life. Typically, searches for life will look for chemical reactions that are out of equilibrium, like an unexpected balance of ozone and methane in the atmosphere. But for sulfur-based life, it's difficult to know where to start. For Io, another problem is that it has no meaningful atmosphere. This means that it has no gas, no liquid on the surface, and as a little experimentation will show, it's a lot easier to make chemical reactions work effectively in a liquid than in a solid. So any sign of life in Io would have to be found underground. Now, finally, and rather fundamentally, it's really quite difficult to imagine what kind of sulfur-based life would work. Carbon is quite remarkable in its ability to form different kinds of chemical bonds, and carbon-based chemistry also interacts very well with water, which is a particularly good solvent. Now, with a more limited range of chemical reactions available to it, producing sulfur-based life should be a lot more difficult than producing carbon-based life. So, I wouldn't advocate sending a probe to Io to look for life. Europa, maybe, or even Ganymede, would be much better targets. Why do you think they'd be much better targets? Well, Europa's got a subsurface ocean. It's covered by an icy crust, but underneath that crust, the water is actually liquid, and we think it's probably quite chemically rich. The interior is tidally heated by Jupiter. And we think that in there there might be some thermal springs or underwater volcanoes that might、uh, provide conditions similar to those found in the early Earth, where we think that life arose. Ganymede is a bit further out from Jupiter, but we think it's still got a subsurface ocean. It's smaller, it's thinner, and it's a lot further from the surface. But theoretically, we could still look for life on there. Okay, thank you. And carrying on with the Jupiter theme, John Morell asks. Jupiter appears to have been hit by another asteroid. Are asteroids more likely to hit the visible side of Jupiter or the side facing away from the sun? Well, in this case, John's referring to quite a small asteroid, probably only a few meters across, which hit Jupiter in September. Old listeners among you may re- remember the impact of Shoemaker-Levy nine into Jupiter in 1994. In both cases, the impact happened on the edge of the planet as we see it. But is this what normally happens? Oh well. Let's smash some stuff into Jupiter and see what happens. Well, first up, we take a comet. Now, comets typically have very elongated orbits, and they'll pass through a planet's orbits at nearly right angles, once on the way in, once on the way out. And if a comet hits Jupiter on the way in, it'll hit its dark side, which faces away from us. If it hits Jupiter on the way out, it'll hit the day side of Jupiter, where we can see it. Now, ignoring the small fraction that hit the sun or hit other planets. The front side of Jupiter is as likely to take a battering from a comet as a back side, so it kind of evens out. But comets only impact Jupiter fairly rarely. Shoemaker-Levy nine was an exception. It's much more common for asteroids to hit Jupiter. Now asteroids tend to go around the sun in the same direction as Jupiter and roughly at the same speed, but they'll be going slightly faster or slightly slower than Jupiter when they share its orbit. Now, if an asteroid is travelling faster than Jupiter, it'll catch it up and hit its trailing side. And that's its western edge or right edge if you're in the northern hemisphere. Now, if the asteroid's travelling a bit slower than Jupiter, it'll hit the leading side of Jupiter. That's the eastern side, or the left-hand edge if you're in the northern hemisphere. Most asteroids start out closer to the sun than Jupiter, and that means that we'll be travelling more slowly than Jupiter if they cross its orbit. So typically, the leading side gets hit more often. So while the side of Jupiter that faces us gets as many hits as the back side. It's the edges of Jupiter as we see them 
that bear the scars of its battles most. In particular, its left edge, that's if you're in the northern hemisphere, its right edge if you're in the southern hemisphere, is the one that gets whacked the most. And this is also true of Earth. You're more likely to get hit by a meteor at 6pm than any other time of day. While we don't know of any that are going to hit us soon, there'll be a close approach by a small asteroid on February the 15th, and that should be visible with binoculars if you know where to look. We'll put the links in the show notes. Thank you for that, Ian. Our final question comes from Cass Lieber, who says, I've been seeing snippets here and there about Delta Scorpii increasing brightness in the past few years. Any chance of a nice explanation on what we know and don't know about this star? Delta Scorpii is one of the few stars that you can see change in brightness with your naked eye. It's a binary system with two very hot blue stars. Each of the stars is several times larger than the Sun, and they orbit each other every 11 years. Now, the orbit is very eccentric. The two stars orbit each other in nearly a figure-of-eight pattern. And the close passage of the two stars means that the hot plasma is actually ripped off the slightly larger star of the pair to form a disk of gas around it. And it's this disk that brightens every 11 years or so as the two stars pirouette around each other, and it increases the total brightness of Delta Scorpii by about 50%. Now, that sounds like quite a lot, but it's not really enough to make a noticeable difference unless you're specifically looking out for it. But Delta Scorpii isn't the only variable star visible to the naked eye. The variable star that's probably been known the longest is Algol, or Beta Persei. Now, Algol comes from the Arabic, meaning head of the ghoul, Algol. And it's loosely translated as the Devil's Star. It's often been shown throughout history as the eye in the Gorgon Medusa's head, which Perseus wields in his never-ending celestial battle with the sea monster Cetus. It gets its demonic name partly from its red colour and partly from its variability. Now we know that Algol is also a binary star, and when one star passes in front of the other, as it does every 2.87 days, it dips in brightness by a factor of about three for a few hours. And if you compare its brightness to that of the surrounding stars, you can see Medusa's eye wink very slowly over the course of the night. Now let me introduce you to another pair of variable stars, Betelgeuse and Myra. These are both red giant stars and their atmospheres pulsate, causing them to change brightness very slowly over many months. Betelgeuse, being a massive star, has rather chaotic pulsations, and it can vary in brightness by up to a factor of two over the course of a season. You can try comparing it to nearby stars Rigel and Aldebaran. That's Beta Orionis and Alpha Tauri, if you want to see how bright it is at the moment. Then try again in a few months. And while you may have heard of Betelgeuse, you may not have heard of Myra. Myra, otherwise known as Omicron Ceti, was discovered to be variable in the 17th century and takes its name from the Latin meaning wonderful. And it really is a wonderful star. Every 11 months, Myra changes between being an obscure 10th magnitude star which you can only see with a telescope, to being a magnificent 3rd or even 2nd magnitude star, the brightest in that part of the sky. That's a factor of nearly 1,000 different in brightness. Now Myra is currently returning to a minimum, which is expected in early April when it's behind the sun. But it'll return to its full, wonderful glory in late July in the early morning sky. See if you can spot it then. Thank you to the great old Mac, John Murrell, and Cass Lieber for your questions. And if you'd like to have your questions answered in Ask an Astronomer, please get in touch via the website. Thanks for that, Ian. And now on to the feedback. We've had one postcard from Australia, which is always very exciting. And it's from David Nash. And on the front of it, we've got a picture of the recent total solar eclipse that occurred this November. So you had to be 
in a pretty small area of the world to actually see that. One of the places it went through is northern Australia, and David is in Cairns, where mm. he says they're enjoying tropical weather, and he saw the total eclipse from a boat on the Great Barrier Reef. Wow. That's amazing. Although that I don't know wonderful. if I'd fancy being on a boat during a total solar eclipse when it suddenly goes dark and you're sloshing around in the sea somewhere. Well, it's not for that long, I don't think, so <laughs> it wouldn't be too bad. And to be fair, you'd be on the Great Barrier Reef in a boat, so <laughs> <laughs> I still think that's worth it. We were having a discussion about him, whether we've been to any solar eclipses before. I've been to see one total solar eclipse in Turkey in 2006, mm. and it was really cool. The main thing I remember, actually, is that there was this 360-degree orange skyline, as if there was a sunset all over the place. That was quite striking. Amazing. I mean, I, I've never seen a solar eclipse before, and I really want to uh, to plan to go to see one. Um, I have to look the, the coming ones up, but one mm. day, definitely. I think it's something that everyone should, if they're interested in, in astronomy and uh, and the sky, I mean, a solar eclipse is, is one of the biggest... Uh, most grand phenomena you could you could possibly observe so mm, i think it could be quite mind-blowing i saw a partial one so i managed to see a big chunk taken out of the sun using proper safe eyewear <laughs> and that was lovely so from the forum we've had quite a few messages really sorry to hear that megan's no longer doing the news anymore john edge has said that she successfully put across complex ideas put over in just a few sentences and making things accessible to the interested amateur. Also, Earth Unit agrees with John and says, thanks for doing a great job with the news, Megan. Thanks for all the great podcast and panto. Have a great Christmas. On Facebook, we've got a post uh, paying tribute to Sir Patrick Moore, who passed away recently. Gone but, but not forgotten, says uh, Katie Colvert. Sir Patrick Moore, obviously, was uh, an, an inspiration to well, multiple generations of astronomers, really. And he had the longest-running TV show by a single presenter um, ever across all countries and all TV networks. Um, and uh, The Sky at Night ran continuously from 1957 all the way up to a couple of weeks before he passed away. So uh, that's a really impressive achievement. That is amazing. Because 1957, I think it was April 1957, and that was slightly before the first satellite was launched, but Nick, mm. and before the Lovell Telescope was finished and Amazing. things like that. <laughs> we'll aim for such uh, longevity with the Jodcast. Oh, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> of course, the sky at night is still is still going to carry on, I think, with him, with Chris Lintott. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he has talked about Sir Patrick in a, in a podcast called Recycled Electrons, so I think that's worth a listen to. Mm-hmm. Also, he was, Sir Patrick Moore, this is, was a, the first director of the Armagh Planetarium in Northern Ireland, which is which is quite famous in that part of the world. And I'm told that he also came to the 30th anniversary of the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank and played the xylophone. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and on Twitter, thanks for more well wishes for Megan and for all the retweets and follow Fridays. So if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And of course, you can always send us posts as the address is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you very much to Phil Diamond and Dave Jones for the interviews. The editors were Mark Perver, Liz Guzman and Indy Leclerc. And the producer was Mark Perver. And so that is it for 2012. Merry Christmas to everybody. And until next year, Jordan. Jordan.